What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. June 6th. Welcome back, everybody. Tom Rose, Gary Bauer with you. The Bauer and Rose podcast, The Bauer and Rose Show. Wherever you get your podcasts, make sure and give us a five-star rating. Recommend us to friends. June 6th, Tuesday morning. It is a Tuesday. The day of days is it used to be called D-Day, the greatest amphibious military operation in human history. The day an imprisoned Europe had been praying for for six years, freed at the cost of of oceans of American and allied blood. But I don't want to get distracted, Gary. It is still Pride Month. Can you imagine, Tom, if um, if George Bush or uh, Donald Trump or, you know, a future Republican president uh, declared that uh, we're, we're going to make June American Pride Month? Uh, and and mark the entire month leading up to the 4th of July with uh, urging uh, communities to do patriotic uh, celebrations, to uh, make special efforts to educate your children uh, about the wonder of America, to if you don't regularly fly the U.S. flag, be sure you fly it in the Pride of you know Pride in America month of, of June, leading up to Fourth of July. Certainly fly it during then. I mean, we we would be off to the oh, it's nationalism. This is odd. It's being pushed by Christians, so it's Christian nationalism. I mean, we would be off to the races. I don't want your do you know what kind of flag in my face? Get it out of my face. Um, I. <laughs> I, I interrupted you. I'm sorry. I'm going to, I'll, I'm going to stop and promise silence the rest of the podcast. Yeah, we'll, we'll uh, exactly. I will make one final point here that on Fox and Friends this morning, um, uh, they, they had a sidewalk audience, no doubt, all pre-selected. There's no spontaneity in these, in these things. And they were going around to the tables. Who would you like to see as the nominee? Who would you like to see as the nominee? And and then people were, oh, I like Tim Scott, and I, I really like this one, I really like that one, Nikki Haley, you know, and uh, well, why? I'm, I'm just looking, every person said, said the same thing, I'm just looking for somebody that I think can bring the country together. And Tom, I wanted to barf up my breakfast. Now, look, it's a natural impulse. If you got an argumentative family, you often, you know, will say to yourself, man, is there any way this family can ever come together again? But then, you know, maybe you got an argumentative family because somebody in the family is an alcoholic <laughs> or a ne'er-do-well or, you know, a wife abuser. Whatever it is, that family ain't coming together, man. You got to prevail in that family. You got to get rid of the troublemakers. Well, these people, God bless their souls, are calling for America to just come together at the very moment. 
that the left is doing every they're not only in our face, they're in our gullets. They are they've climbed inside our mouths and they're tossing our organs around. They are doing everything they can to offend us and they're daring us to do anything about it. And we're going, we know what we're doing. We're adopting the Biden administration on communist China. And we're doing it culturally here in America. No matter what communist China does to American forces, what outrages Biden says, we just want to talk. That's what these people, well-meaning people are doing, no matter what the left tries to do to our children, to our values, to our families, to our faiths. We go, can't we just sit down and play patty cake? <laughs> well, I, I, pride <clears throat> used to be a sin. Lust used to be a sin. Think about this. I, I heard a, a friend of mine over the weekend say, what if there were a Jewish Pride Month? A contradiction in terms, actually. Um, where You mean a Pride, pride Month? <laughs> <laughs> a Jewish Pride Month where um, the Israeli flag, the Star of David, had to be flown from every flagpole. Uh, and if you didn't, that must mean you're an anti-Semite. If you, it's the the whole thing is it 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 borders on uh, the suicidal. I mean, how is it that the wealthiest and most prosperous society in human history opts for this self suicide? Today we advance um, our cultural weaknesses as as strengths as virtues, right? I mean, here we are, the seventy ninth anniversary of D Day. Yesterday. Um, uh, Chinese time or China time, an episode in the in international waters, the Taiwan Strait, a U.S. destroyer is cut off by a Chinese warship, misses it by 100 yards. Uh, the U.S. destroyer then backs down, withdraws. Uh, Beijing then accuses us of deliberately provoking risk. Our chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley, and... His spokesperson, John Kirby, both play down the incident. Uh, we didn't want to. It was very unprofessional of the Chinese. It was it was it was unprofessional um, and it was uh, it was unnecessary. This is all on video. This, these are in international waters. Now, what do you think the Chinese are thinking about American resolve, American commitment, even if they're wrong, which unfortunately I don't think they are, but even if they're wrong, does it matter? Because their perception will lead them to continue to take actions that threaten us irrespective of our uh, inclinations on this side of the Pacific. Here we are 79 years to the day after the greatest military operation in history. And I think it's important to point out you were just in Normandy. Uh, I, you know, you and I know a, a, a bit about this. We seem to uh, forget or it's, because it's easy to put everything related to the invasion of, of Western Europe onto D-Day. D-Day itself was a charnel house. It took eight weeks for us to break out of the bocage, the, the, uh, the, these thousand-year-old hedgerows in Normandy that had been built up over the centuries by farmers, you know, delineating their land, it was... And we underestimated their height, right? Absolutely, and their depth. And, yep. you know, tanks couldn't move through them, so tanks were 
restricted to roads, which made them very vulnerable. Our objectives, the American objective was to take can on the first day. It took seven weeks. It was, and the, I, I guess the relationship here is, or the point is, uh, uh, D-Day didn't end in a day. It was a nightmare for eight weeks until we finally broke out. But we didn't give up. We didn't, you know, question our resolve or our commitment. Uh, we didn't withdraw our troops. We adjusted. We continued to fight. Uh, we continued to pour in men and materiel because America had a commitment, had a resolve that uh, today I think the Chinese would be well excused to thinking we no longer have. Well, I, uh, Tom, yes, well, well said. By, by the way, I'm not sure this is a kosher thing to do, but um, if people have a little piece of paper and a pencil and pen nearby, um, right now on the James Dobson Family Institute website, uh, you can go to it by typing in JDFI, stands for James Dobson Family Institute. And you will find there a place where it, it lists uh, radio shows. There's a daily family talk radio show sponsored by Dr. Dobson. And I'm doing some work for them. And um, the, the bottom line is that, that uh, Tom and I were able to sit together and talk about D-Day and about America and uh, about what our children should be taught um, in, the, in that way that only Tom and I can do. That's why you're listening to the Bower and Rose show. But anyway, they loved it so much. It was supposed to be a, a half hour radio show. They turned it into two shows. And, and uh, I would encourage you to go there and, and listen because uh, it's an edited version of the Bower and Rose. I mean, almost anything we spout out here, uh, it, it goes into the podcast. But it, it, we got a great producer, but we like it that way. But this was really handled, uh, you know, with a whole staff making us sound good. Uh, and I thought it was a great discussion, Tom, and they're getting, you know, they're already getting some good, uh, feedback from the podcast. They also turned our comments into. So, uh, that's, that's my gift today uh, to tell you how you can get more Bower and Rose so you don't have to wait days between when we spout our wisdom. <laughs> God help us. You know, if, if, if we look north, uh, of the 38th parallel, uh, to our friends in Canada, there might be a warning there. I think there's, it's more than a might. It's a definite warning because we're, they usually set the, the uh, cultural trends that we end up following. On D-Day, uh, Canada had the third largest Navy in the world. There were 21,000 Canadian troops that took uh, Sword Beach, which was thought to be the toughest the Canadian Air Force regarded as was regarded as pilot for pilot that you know the best in the world that's why we gave them the toughest beaches on D-Day but now if you look at Canada it's turned into this feminized culture that uh, prioritizes all the impulses of society rights and entitlements over all the, 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 the primary ones about protecting your family, that kind of stuff. So to understand what it is about us, what makes us so seemingly weak, I think requires us to step back and look at what's happened to us 
in the 79 years to the day since D-Day. We now have a president who calls banning child sexual mutilation a sin. That's where we are now. That's where we've come in 80 years. I think it's a big mistake, Gary, to think of the left, and I know a lot of us do. I fall into this trap all the time. As a secular movement, um, I don't think it's secular. I, I just don't think people throw their lives away for politics. They don't turn on their parents. They don't disparage and try to destroy their societies and their entire way of life over a, a policy position. I think people only do that for something that they think is deeper, something that touches or provides them a sense of purpose and meaning in a world that for them is broken. Um, And just because the left doesn't believe in a central deity, God, doesn't mean they aren't religious. It just means that their religion is far more primitive. It's far more dangerous. Um, Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's not new. Uh, I mean, there are many pagan... Um, faiths that bedeviled um, mankind um, and until a uh, member of a relatively obscure tribe out in the desert um, came across a burning bush and uh, was given uh, big news that there was one God who had created everything. Um, and from that moment on, the world began to change. And the, the reason it, it's livable and the reason in so many countries um, that uh, the, the weak can have a reasonable expectation that if they keep out of bad places, they're going to be OK, that uh, somebody down the street that's bigger than you is not going to come and steal your wife or uh, your cattle or your car or whatever, uh, is because that that civilization, the Judeo-Christian civilization built on the one and only true God, has transformed the world. And in many ways, we're just living off the rapidly depleted reservoir of that civilization. That point, Tom, has even made some uh, very outspoken atheists in Europe say in recent years that they wanted to back off of their uh, criticism of and mockery of Judeo-Christianity uh, because they it suddenly hit them that without it, people like them, the atheists, would probably be hanging from a tree somewhere. Uh, so uh, I don't know, you know, when uh, we're going to catch on. But, but you know, by the way, Tom, one of the one of the markers of paganism almost always has been. Uh, child sacrifice. Yep. And, and, you know, is there something the left in America is more committed to than keeping the number of abortions each year as high as possible, no matter what it takes? On the other hand, look at what they do to children that are lucky enough to escape abortion, um, sexualize them at a very early age and now promote uh, sexual mutilation. It's just there's a there's a comedy routine. I'm sure you've heard it's, you know, Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner from God knows how long ago about the 2000 year old man. You know, Mel Brooks is 2000 years old. He comes back. Right. And, you know, Carl Reiner is uh, is interviewing him and he says, tell me, how did this notion of God come about? And Mel Brooks and his inimical, you know, uh, Brooklyn 
a Jewish accent is, is, is saying, you know, we lived in the cave and there was a guy called Phil and Phil would beat us up and beat us with a club. So we all worship Phil. And then one day a lightning struck and sure enough, Phil was dead. And then we realized there's something bigger than Phil. I mean, it's it's uh, <laughs> I, I, I just and they started worshiping lightning. right? <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I, I just I, I guess the question is how in a conservative country and while we're far less conservative than we used to be, I'd still say it's a center slash sort of right country. Did extremist policies become so universally institutionalized? And I think the answer, I don't know whether you'll agree with this or not, is that by our very nature, conservatives are more apt to um, accept institutions and traditions rather than to try to destroy them. We're conservatives, after all. We like to conserve rather than destroy. So, and you referenced it earlier with the dysfunctional family. I didn't realize you were talking specifically about my family, but um, <laughs> I was actually referring to mine years ago. Years ago, no, my that dad is bad side, right? That that side. our our instinct, which is ironic because we're we're pegged and pilloried as being the opposite, but our instinct as conservatives really is to live and let live, and that yeah, I think well, is 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 hurting us now. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Well, look, it's a it's sort of a libertarian concept, right? I mean, the founders, to, to some extent, would have embraced that um, live and let live idea, but but they would have done it within the context of uh, what it meant to live a virtuous life. Absolutely, absolutely. And the distinction, I, I realize I'm interrupting you, but you know, a turnabout is fair play. Um, sure. Uh, uh, living and uh, live and let live doesn't mean we have to accept or we have to celebrate or we have to to, to solemnize uh, uh, positions, views, lifestyles we don't agree with. It's that we're you know we're not we don't picket in front of their houses. Um, uh, we don't uh, work to uh, you know pack the Supreme Court. We work to nominate more conservative judges, uh, just like we try to get more conservative senators elected rather than by ending the filibuster or packing the Senate. And a lot of us, and you've spoken about this often, very, very eloquently, too many of us believe that we just don't have time for politics. We're busy. You know, we're focusing on our families, our jobs, our, our community, our neighborhoods, our churches. Um, and as conservatives, we've never liked organized boycotts. We'd never dream of picketing outside the home of a left wing politician or judge. We're just we're just not like that. We just shrug and move along. Yeah. And, well, Tom, there, there are a lot of problems and, and, and you're you're certainly touching on a, a key issue here. Um, the, the people we're very risk adverse uh, and that that's something that. You know, America always uh, avoided. I mean, we took incredible risks from the very beginning. When you read about the the pioneers, you know, not talking about the founders, the founder generation, but uh, once you know a decent life had been established along the eastern seaboard, th- this urge, this almost um, an urge that could not be satisfied without responding to it to move west, to go right into the heart of darkness, knowing there would be hostile tribes, knowing there would be diseases, wild animals. People 
all over the eastern seaboard, raised money, put together whatever they could, took their little children with them and set out to find a place where they could build a new community. Many of them buried their children along the riverbanks that they were traveling, never to be able to go back to that place again to even see the grave. I mean, they, they, they did things that if we had the attitude that we have now in so many cases, you know, when, when there would be an accident in the space program and tragically uh, some astronauts would die, the cries to end the space program were overwhelmed. We can't do this until it's perfectly safe. It's got to be safe. If we would have had that attitude, America would have stopped at the Mississippi River. Uh, if it got that far, I was going to say if there would be an America at all. And today right. you've got I, I mean, we haven't really gotten into this in 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 much detail. And that's the the what's happened to American institutions, in this case, sports. Of course, I'm talking about the Dodgers uh, inviting this this anti-Catholic hate group. And that's exactly what they are um, for their pride month. Uh, there are. I, th- I just saw this statistic the other day. There are, I guess, nine, just right under 1,000 players on active MLB rosters. And as of, I guess this was last Friday when I was checking this out, there have been only four or five players that have said anything. I mean, Clayton Kershaw, who's the you know greatest pitcher probably since Sandy Koufax, on the Dodgers, makes, what does he make, $30 million, $35 million a year? He's one of the four or five who did speak out. He was kind of mealy-mouthed. The best guy's been uh, the Nationals pitcher, whose name I now can't recall. But what's stunning to me is that the Dodgers, by inviting this anti-Catholic hate group, are grossly violating, and no one seems to point this out, their own anti-discrimination policy that explicitly prohibits... Any conduct or clothing at the ballpark that's deemed uh, indecent or prejudiced against any particular group or religion. That's a direct quote from their policy. The Dodgers invitation shatters the most basic principle of American civic life. The principle that demands that we uh, respect other people, that we tolerate other people, and that we're inclusive. So the whole notion that they're being inclusive by inviting uh, celebrating this this despicable, disgusting anti-Catholic hate group uh, flies in the face of everything they purport to support or promote. There's nothing inclusive about uh, trashing uh, Catholics, about disparaging Christians. There's nothing respectful about uh, uh, about demonizing uh, Christianity or the Catholic Church. No, and, and it's, uh, it, it would not be tolerated if it was going against any other faith. Absolutely and right. And people would really go ballistic if it, was, uh, if it was being done, if there was a group of gay men that mocked Muslim imams, for example. Uh, that would, I mean, there'd be a federal investigation. The, the politicized Justice Department would already be in the front office of the L.A. Dodgers demanding to see all emails and other communication that led to this really huge hate crime against American Muslims. Well, everybody in the Dodgers organization would be dead. So it would yeah, be a, well, that's, 
That's true. Yeah, that is also true. But that wouldn't stop the prosecutions of them <laughs> or their families. You know, it's uh, yeah, Tom. I I mean, it it's it's uh, I, I keep hearing people say, and I've said it myself in the last couple of days. I I've been waiting for a long time. We all have. Is there a a, a Rubicon that can be crossed that uh, people will finally say, okay, I. I just can't do this anymore. I've got to fight back. I think it's possible that the transmania horse poopy uh, may be that. We'll see. I hope you're um, right. I, I don't because, know. Because, you know, we, we, we've become so desensitized. Um, the, I, I just heard this morning that – not far from where I live, uh, in, in the, the little uh, jurisdiction of Fairfax City, Virginia, in the old courthouse, which is no longer operating as the courthouse, there was a pride event in the, the last couple of days that uh, was a drag queen performance in which children were in the audience. And the children were encouraged to tip the drag queens who were doing these sexualized dances in front of them. <laughs> the mayor is all in for this. The Democrat female mayor of Fairfax City. Now, there was a demonstration outside of opposition. And one woman was quoted as saying, look, have a problem with the whole drag queen thing. I mean, that's been around forever. But this exposure of children to it and now encouraging children to give men money who are doing sexually suggestive dances in front of them. This is just immoral, she said. This is not this is not allowed. This is unbelievable. The mayor says, I just don't get it. I, I don't get what the uproar is about. I mean, what what's the big deal? Because lust is there no lo- lust is no longer a sin. There are no sexual taboos. No, so actually, that's untrue. There are all kinds of social taboos now. You can't be a Christian. You can't be uh, uh, conservative. I was listening to Molly Hemingway the other day. She had a great. Uh, I forgot about it, but it, it's it's kind of humorous. Apropos the Dodgers, back in 1965, game one of the World Series, uh, every Jew in the country, in the world, uh, knows this story. Sandy Koufax, the greatest pitcher of all. I mean, if he didn't get hurt, Gary, if he didn't blow out his arm, uh, I I think he... He threw four no-hitters in five years. I mean, there was nobody like him, and he blew his arm out and, of course, um, had a shortened career. But game one of the 1965 World Series was on, fell on Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, of course, is Christmas, Easter, and Pentecost rolled into one for Jews. It's the day of days. And Sandy refused to pitch. And talk about pride. That was a moment that galvanized American Jewry like like few had. And... um, uh, the funny thing is that Don Drysdale, also a Hall of Fame pitcher, was called in to pitch because Sandy wouldn't pitch. He got absolutely shellacked. 
And after the game, after the game, he tells his manager, I'm sorry, coach. I don't, don't you wish I was Jewish today too? <laughs> I never heard that part of the story. What a great spin on that. I, I bet that Koufax had been praying for Drysdale to do really well. Of course. You know, so that people wouldn't be angry with him. But yeah, Tom, I mean, that, that's, that's a wonderful story. Um, you, you know, you, you said that, um, uh, the different rules there are if an adult male uh it, it used to be completely legitimate for an adult male to say to a woman in the office or uh, in the factory or wherever um that is a really becoming dress well somewhere along the line that became a uh, possible sexual harassment and you, you know, particularly with younger women, you, you've got to be very careful. If you're, if you're a boss and you've got some women working for you, something that, you know, when I grew up, I, I was kind of taught by my mother that, you, you know, if, if you, if you see a girl at school and, and she's wearing something that, you know, makes her look very attractive, she, you would be a lot to her if you, respectfully said that's a very nice sweater you know you can't do that now if you're a heterosexual male but in the same schools or the same workplaces we've got days weeks months where we're supposed to embrace homosexual lifestyles and all that goes with that i mean if anybody just would pause for a moment and think it through, this is insane. And Tom, just like the Fairfax mayor who couldn't see any problem with you know men in drag doing sexual dances in front of children who were then being encouraged to give them money, why didn't anybody see a problem with uh, all of us being required to share pride with LGBTQ plus folks about their particular choices. What, what has that got to do with me? Why would I need to join in a pride celebration or be accused of being a bigot? Because it's, it's, it's social, it's social fascism. That's precisely what it is. They are in the classic case of projection. They are exactly what they accuse us of being. We don't shove. I mean, I talk a lot about Judaism and the Jewish people. I don't shove it down people's throats. I wouldn't be able to even if I could. And getting back to this baseball thing, how many players, uh, you know, cross themselves before they, you know, step to the plate or look to the heavens after they hit a home run. Why aren't they speaking out? They're the ones with the power, not the owners. Uh, the, the Dodgers are not going to fire Clayton Kershaw over uh, opposing, you know, drag night at Dodger Stadium. I don't understand why uh, the Baseball Players Association isn't far more active in opposition to this kind of thing. When the overwhelming majority of players, particularly Hispanic players, are are Catholic. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, th- there's only one answer I can come up with, Tom, and it's fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and my goodness, if if something like this makes uh, 
you know, a, a professional athlete that's being paid millions because of their athletic ability. They go up there. They're tough. You know, if there's anybody dissing anybody on the field, a lot of these players are ready to run out of the dugouts and do battle out on the diamond, you know, tackling each other, per- taking the risk of ruining your career by, you know, getting your arm injured or breaking your hand or whatever. Oh, look how tough I am. But they're not tough enough to stand up to against a bunch of men with hairy legs acting like they're nuns. Come on, man. How, how, why? A, Explain that to me. I, I, I think that the fear of being singled out and having a label put on you, this, this whole way the left has worked very hard to make sure they own the streets. We've talked about this before. I think this is a big deal, Tom. They want that the left wants to be the only political entity that when it suits their purposes, can go into the streets and cause mayhem, destroying property, threatening people's businesses, and get away with calling it a social justice protest. But if a conservative-oriented individual or somebody in service to a conservative cause tries to go out and exercise his right to assemble and freedom of speech, the entire weight of the left – from the government left to the left thugs on the street will come down on that and silence it in any way that they can. Uh, it I, scares the daylights out of them to think that we might stop hiding in our houses and realize that even now there are more of us than them. And what would happen if we all took to the streets when we're angry. I mean, I think that can be back in 2020. And I was actually there. I was trapped in the White House. Uh, May 31, Memorial Day weekend, rioters who um, surrounded the White House, throwing mostly peaceful Molotov cocktails at the White House. They injured 150 law enforcement officers. They walked away with de minimis fines and no jail time. While, you know, six months later, those who paraded around like, you know, clowns uh, walking through open doors in the Capitol are now serving five year prison sentences in solitary confinement. I mean, Donald Trump has a greater likelihood of being indicted by a New York City prosecutor for allegedly, quote unquote, you know, overvaluing his net worth, you know, 20 years ago than some street thug clubbing an old lady in the New York City subway has of ever being indicted. Yeah, well, look at, remember Rittenhouse, that young man, sure. you know, he drove to the city where the rioting was going on. The, the city government appeared totally unable to restore order. He had family that lived in that city. He had some friends that... Uh, His father had a business there, I believe, didn't he? Yep, yep. And he went there to help protect that business. They wanted to crucify him. They wanted to take down so bad they could not they had to do everything they could to not let that be an example that others might emulate and fortunately they failed and uh he was not convicted in a court of law there's a you know a, a lighter example but it was a big deal to him the catholic boy from covington kentucky that comes to washington dc for the right to life march 
uh, is that the Lincoln Memorial gets harassed by uh, a number of people, including a radical black group that claims they are the actual Jews. I forget the name of that group, but those people are freaking nuts and they've got a history of violence. And then uh, there was a, a, you know, a professional Native American uh, agitator that has made his life by suing people for imaginary discrimination that got in this kid's face. And the boy didn't do anything but just stand where he'd been standing. And the media, they crucified him within hours. Look at that sneer on that white boy's face. And they wanted to destroy him. He fought back. He won huge settlements against several networks. But again, it was he was a pro-lifer. He was Catholic. He was at the Lincoln Memorial. He refused to get out of the way when minorities were approaching him. He's, he had the audacity as an American boy to stand on the steps. By the way, Tom, some of his classmates were black Catholic boys, and they were with him and the, the class. They were singled out for even worse treatment by the agitators, including this group of blacks claiming to be the only true Jews who were harassing the black students and saying to them, how can you be with these white kids? I mean, so on every level, the bad guys here were bad guys, broadly speaking, on the left. The good guys here were just normal American kids not doing anything that was untoward or inappropriate, and the left needed to destroy them. One quick final example. The couple in St. Louis who lived in a gated community, there was uh, over-the-top Black Lives Matter demonstrations going on uh, not far from their house. And then one day, one evening, demonstrators knock down the fence, the gate to the gated community, come marching into their neighborhood. And the husband and wife in this house go out on their own front steps and said to the crowd, and they had their legal firearms with them. They said to the crowd, they didn't point them at anybody. They just showed that they had them. And they said, get off of our property. You're on private property. This is a private community. Get away from here. And the leftist establishment in St. Louis tried to destroy that couple. <laughs> so on and on it goes. Yeah, on and on. on the streets. On and on it goes. And listening to all of that and all of the threats at the pillars of our society and the foundations of our civilization. You've got this phenomenon, which, which is hard for me to explain. Conservatives, Republicans, uh, allegedly rhinos, some not even rhinos, that are more appalled, more offended by Donald Trump's personality. And I get people don't like Donald Trump. That's, that's, that's perfectly fine. But that his personality that they don't like uh, destroying that is more important than saving the country. I mean, there's this narcissism among, and you and I are friends with some of these people, one in particular who's lifelong friend, and I will always have affection for, for that person. Um, their hatred has so blinded them that they've now literally jumped ship 
I, I just this this narcissistic uh, notion or tendency that I don't like X, therefore screw the country. Let's you know all side with those who want to burn the country down. I don't get that. I've never gotten that, and that's not to say. I don't respect or understand how some people might not like Donald agree with his policies, but might not like Donald Trump's personality. But for heaven's sakes. Well, Tom, I mean, I, you know, without getting too deep into all that, because we do have friends in the race and and so forth. uh, I I just think it's imperative for uh, all Republican leaders and all leaders of the conservative movement, whether they're in office or out of office, to understand that what we are experiencing is not because uh, Donald Trump uh, polarized the country and caused all these divisions. The the divisions in the country and the attacks on family, faith and freedom in America created Donald Trump. It made it possible for an outsider type figure who was speaking about America being number one, that globalism is a mistake, that Christians are the largest group in America, but are unbelievably powerless. And he wanted to know why uh, the country was ready to try something else. And so he he uh, shocked the political establishment and uh, and won. If he disappeared tomorrow, none of the things we're seeing would stop. In fact, I would argue that there's a good chance they would accelerate even more. And it's not a misunderstanding. I mean, look, I I, I can find uh, it's not hard to find patriotic Americans. This is a country with a lot of veterans. They love our country. We, we have their military families. They're still you know, the instinctive love you have for the country of your birth. But this ain't the America of 1980 that elected Ronald Reagan. It simply isn't, folks. Quit deceiving yourselves. There's there's all kinds of research that shows it. If you want to believe the research, talk to a kid in your neighborhood. Just ask him what he thinks about America. Now, you may in a lot of places in America and in a lot of those counties that vote red, you might get some great answers because kids are still hearing it at the dinner table or you know, getting it in a decent school. But you talk to kids in the big city schools and in the suburbs of many of those schools. You're going to have a hard time finding young people that think about America the way we all think about America, the way we grew up thinking about America. That has been eroded away intentionally, Tom. And, you know, when when we talk in speeches about the Constitution, there's a good chunk of America that's like, what? What's he talking about? What? What? Uh, so we, somebody's got to address this. And you know, Trump did it a lot of times, much to the chagrin of the left and of the media. But if you if we elect a Republican president and all that Republican president is interested in doing is lowering marginal tax rates for the highest owners, uh, you know, uh, uh, doing the traditional America policeman of the world. Um, continues the deficit spending, 
maybe tries to get some regulations off of our backs, but does not confront the social trends that are sweeping the country, are stealing our children, they will have accomplished nothing except preside over the disappearance of the place that used to be called America and it meant a certain group of things and now will just be a piece of dirt that might still have the same name, but it won't stand for any of the things America was founded on. You know, Democrats are are giddy at new data that shows that younger voters are turning out more than ever and they're leaning left. What a surprise. What a shock as we've radicalized every institution that shapes or molds our young people. Uh, we're stunned that young people vote left. And, you know, contrary to conventional wisdom that they try to shove down our throats, that young voters always are automatically liberal. That's not true. In 1984, um, the under 30s strongly backed Reagan's reelection. In 2000, they split almost evenly between Gore and Bush. It's true that people uh, become more conservative theoretically the older they get, the more experience they have. But the notion that young people are always liberal and always far left, it's not true. And it's hardly a surprise when... uh, uh, you know, the young cohort in our country that's the product of a of a public school system that spends $800 billion a year where only one out of five are able to perform at grade level because rather than being taught history or philosophy, or, you know, let alone reading and writing, yes. Uh, you know, are taught about LGBT and and uh, how to have gay sex and all this kind of stuff. We're shocked then that they're now voting far left. Of course, they're voting far left. Yeah, I mean, Tom, are you, 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 I, I'm not sure people still quite get this, um, but this is so pervasive now. You know, it used to be just the universities. I used to get letters all the time. Uh, sad letters, really heartbreaking letters from people who would say, you know, we did everything right with our daughter. Uh, you know, we prayed at this dinner table. She went to church with us on Sundays. Uh, my, my husband served in the military. We're very patriotic. We sent her to the university of, you know, fill in the blank. And after one year there, we saved all of our lives that so she could go. After one year there, she came back and we we no longer recognized our own daughter. She hated America. She hated the military. She thought we were stupid. We were bigots. Now those letters, those were letters were fairly routine uh, all the way back in, in the 90s and early 2000s. Now, Tom, I get letters from saying, you know, from kid from parents saying my our sixth grader came home the other day and seemed very depressed and I, I said, honey, you know, what's, what's wrong? Well, I'm not supposed to talk about it. No, no, no. Whoa, whoa. What, what do you mean you're not supposed to talk about it? Well, we're, we're learning, you know, some different things in, in, in class about the real history of America and how racist we've always been. And gee, it's just kind of depressing, mom. You and dad never told me any of this stuff. Sixth grade, sixth grade. If you turn over your children to government-run schools in a government that increasingly is at war with everything America has always stood for, you can't be surprised 
when you find out that your children uh, now resemble, you know, Mao's army or Hitler's army rather than the little patriots you hoped you were raising. <laughs> You're absolutely right. I mean, the, 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 and the racism charge is one that is, it's an ad hominem. I mean, how do you respond to that? Dissent is the highest form of racism. Now, code word is now a code word for you didn't say what I wanted you to say to prove my point. We used to say that the accusation of racism is a sign that a liberal's losing an argument, but I don't believe that anymore because it doesn't mean they're losing an argument. It means that they shut it down and they've been effective at doing that. Yeah. And man, it takes, it takes courage, Tom. And I, that's again, the silver liner lining in all this trans uh, mania uh, psychosis. Um, you know, I, I saw a brief interview this morning with four, the four high school girls. I believe they were all from Connecticut that a few years ago uh, were crushed by boys claiming to be girls uh, who then stole the trophies and and uh, slots on the state team that those girls had spent precious years of their lives training for. And uh, one of the girls, uh, they were all warned. By the school, don't be criticizing this. That's a violation of the school policy on tolerance. You know, you're going to be in big trouble. Well, one of those high school girls vehemently objected, as did her parents. And that, that seeing that led another one of the girls to do the same. And eventually there were four of them. Multiple, in fact, the girls themselves say every girl on the team agreed with us in private, but the rest of them and their parents were afraid to say anything. These girls are still in court. They lost the original court case, which was delayed and delayed and delayed. Then the court said, well, you don't have any standing anymore because you're not high school girls on a team anymore. Mm. (laughs) Well, now the court, after additional lawsuits, has agreed to rehear the case. You've got the uh, Riley girl from uh, the University of Kentucky who has been a stalwart uh, in, in speaking up about this issue. And so I'm, I'm hopeful, Tom. I, I saw on social media yesterday uh, a 14-year-old girl uh, who wrote a poem called I Am a Woman. And um, she said, um, yeah, I can't duplicate it. And then thank God I won't try. <laughs> but the basic theme was um, I- I'm a woman. I'm more than just a dress. Putting a dress on does not make you a woman. And then she goes, yeah, I'm more than uh, a-, a-, a birther. I'm more than this. I'm more than that. Uh, you, you know, and it was a, it was a poem of defiance against this idea that a man or a boy can just assert that he is a woman and we are all supposed to bow at that altar. Tom, um, the, a pastor at a church in Northern Virginia, uh, Gary Hamrick, um, it, the, the church is getting an incredible reputation about 
the courage of the pastor uh, and his ability, his willingness from the pulpit to talk about these issues. This past Sunday, he told a story about a, uh, it's a, it's a big and growing church that, um, uh, obvious man dressed, uh, in women's clothing with makeup on, uh, came to the church some months ago with a, uh, five or six year old child who he would put in the nursery. And this guy then would go all the way up to the second row and sit there, uh, during the service. And there were people in the church that, you know, were concerned about it. Was he, what, was this a paid agitator? Was there gonna, was, was he capable of violence? What, what was going on? And the pastor said, look, uh, everybody in the church is a sinner. Um, let's just wait. Let's just see, you know, I'm gonna preach just the way I always preach. I will periodically be mentioning as I had planned to the trans issue because I believe it the pastor said this is demonic in its origins it's a it's a war on God's creation of men and women they told the guy they did take him aside and say to him um, you're you know we, we welcome you to the church you can continue to be here uh, we're going to preach the message message of the gospel but if you want to use the bathroom facilities, you will use the men's bathroom. And the guy was very upset about that, but agreed to abide by it. Nonetheless, they put a guard outside of the women's bathrooms. And the, one Sunday, the guy tried to go into the women's bathroom, and the guard stood in his way and says, you cannot do that. And the guy left and he never came back to that church. Now, I thought it was a great way that they handled it. Uh, and the courage of the pastor and of the church leadership is exactly what is needed. Yeah, we, we Christians, uh, Tom, speaking of myself and Carol and our family, you know, we refer to the church as the body of Christ. That it is the, the representation of the body of Christ. And we'll say the body of Christ has got to be courageous at a time like this. So for every church like the one I'm describing, I, I see this story out of New York where an Episcopal cathedral of St. John of the Sacred Heart uh, Cathedral in St. John in New York City has bathed the entire interior of the church in the rainbow colors. <laughs> Every wall, everywhere, the entire month will have gay-oriented events at the church. Now, this is the same John that, that wrote the book of Revelation. That is a description of what will God do when he gets fed up enough about sinful man the next time. And I couldn't think of the, I couldn't help but think of the irony, Tom. The, the first time God got fed up with sinful man, he flooded the earth, killed everybody but Noah's family. And put a rainbow in the sky as a covenant that he would never destroy the world again with water. But then, as it is explained in the scripture, the next time will be done with fire and brimstone. And the irony that the church named after John, who wrote Revelation as he took dictation from God, 
in dreams that he had on the island of Patmos, now bays the cathedral named after him, promising what God will do to to decadence and sin. They bathe their church interior with the rainbow colors, which have been expropriated by the gay rights movement. The rainbow used to be a symbol, a biblical symbol of God's promises. Our promise is that we are so far over time at this point that we can just I keep. This week we were going to do Sundays too. I, I <laughs> no, I, I, I you know, I actually at the, at this stage we're so far over we could just keep on talking for hours on end. But we're way over, thanks to Gary Bauer. Let me say privately to the uh, producer that if that last story, which uh, I really was interested in, so was I. Anything to our discussion? So was I. That's why I. uh, No, that's what. That's exactly why um, I and my senior executive position here allowed you to prattle on. It was very. It was very well said. But we do have to go. Prattle better than anybody. Uh, You do. We do have to go. Have a great couple days. We'll talk to you in a few days. Don't forget to subscribe uh, to the Bauer and Rose podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and you'll be notified if you subscribe whenever we hit the air. Have a great day. 